Thank you. Good morning. I'm just, uh, Katie and I are so honored to be able to, you know, enter into this role together as we, uh, when Treb first asked me uh, to consider the idea uh, that the elder board believed that God could be calling me to serve in this role, uh, we, we were deeply humbled uh, and honored. And over the process of discernment and training, uh, reading through these texts that Treb uh, read this morning, it is definitely a, a humbling and a high calling, and I am uh, excited to enter into that and looking forward to continuing to be a part of what God is doing here. This has been our church family for a long time now, and we're so thankful for you and for what you mean to us. And so it is uh, truly just an honor to be able to uh, to do this with you this morning. And uh, it is my first day on the job, and so we're just going to put me right in into it here and get started. Um, which I'm excited about, but the, uh, the ability to teach is something that the Bible clearly says that an elder needs to have, and so I'm, I'm always excited uh, when I've had the opportunities previously to stand up here and to talk about what God's Word says uh, and to look at it together with you, and uh, we're going to continue uh, where we've been in the book of John this morning in chapter 14. If you've been with us uh, for any amount of time, I think this is our 57th week uh, going through the book of John and spending time looking at it verse by verse and seeing and learning from what God's Word has to say to us. Um, and so we're excited to continue to get to look at, at what it says this morning. We'll be starting in uh, verse 25 of chapter 14, so if you want to go ahead and start turning there, I'd love for you to do that. Uh, if it is your first time with us, I uh, just want to say again how glad we are that you're here and that you're joining us in worship this morning. We're honored that you'd give us part of your Sunday morning and that you would choose to come and to spend time with us. Uh, we hope that you'll find us as a, a community of people that love God and uh, love each other and love you and are following Jesus and pursuing his word. And we always want to hold scripture, as Treb mentioned, in the highest regard, and so we're always going to be looking at the Bible and talking about what it says, and we're excited to look at it together. Uh, before we dive in, let's take a moment and let's just pray and ask God to come and teach us something this morning. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, that it is true, uh, and that it is God-breathed, Lord. I pray uh, that you would just help us to take a moment and set aside the distractions or the things that might be in our lives uh, that, that are taking our focus away from you this morning. Lord, we're all busy and we have things going on, and we know, uh, you know we have to be somewhere this afternoon, but I pray that you would just still our hearts this morning and that you would enable us to learn from your word. Take a moment in your own heart and ask God just to teach you something this morning. As we do every week at this church, we want to be a church that prays for each other. Uh, let, let's take a moment and ask God to, to work in the life of someone around you, even if it's someone that you don't know. Uh, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife, maybe it's someone down the aisle. Uh, just ask God to work in the hearts of other people this morning as well. Lord, we are just so grateful uh, that you have given us your word and that, that you are faithful and that you provide for us. And Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit would come over us and that it would teach us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. So starting in... Uh, Verse 25 of John chapter 14, let's read what God's word says. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything. 
that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away, and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father, and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. So, as we look at this passage, in the very first verse here, in verse 25, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, All this I have spoken while still with you. And I think it's important for us to take just a moment and to think about and uh, remember what all this that he has been speaking to them really is. This discourse that Jesus is on started back in chapter 13, when they sat down to uh, share in the Passover meal together, which is this interaction that we refer to as the Last Supper. And Jesus sat down with his disciples, and he, uh, he knew that this was going to be one of the last times that he's teaching them before he goes to the cross. But his disciples didn't know that. They probably thought that this was just another, uh, another time to celebrate the Passover. And uh, John is the only one of the gospel writers that actually records this interaction. And he spends quite a bit of time on it. We're going to finish chapter 14 this morning, but there will be a couple other chapters as we continue to see Jesus teaching through this long discourse interaction as he's giving some of his parting thoughts and instructions to the disciples before he actually uh, goes to the cross. And as we've talked about before, the Gospel of John has one real central point in message. John wrote his Gospel a little bit differently than the other three Gospels, and we see that John is really trying to put on display the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is in fact God himself, that he's not just a good teacher, that he's not just a guy who uh, is worthy of listening to, but he actually is God himself. And uh, this passage that we have this morning and, and this whole discourse that Jesus is on through these few chapters really puts John's main point on display for us. We've seen Jesus uh, do things like prophesy, and where he tells uh, the disciples that Judas is going to betray him, and that Peter is going to deny him. We see him do things uh, like tell them he's leaving, so it'll make sense later, even though it really upsets them in the here and the now. He says, I'm going, and then it all makes sense later, but he's telling them these things, proving to them that he actually is God, that he knows what's happening, and that he does have a plan in the way that life is going. He tells them that uh, the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit in his name, that the Holy Spirit is going to come as a counselor, as an advocate, and is going to remind them of the things that he has taught them. And then he tells them just straight up that, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He tells them that he is God. And, he, and this is one of the, the clearest representations we have uh, of Jesus telling his disciples that he actually is God and that he and God are one and the same. And so there's a ton of content for us to think about as Jesus is, as we look at just this first verse, all these things that he has spoken while still with them before he leaves uh, means a lot of different things. And we've been looking at those over the past few weeks, but that's just a little recap. Um, and as we're thinking about those things that Jesus has been telling the disciples, I think it's we should put ourselves uh, in a situation to try to look at the disciples' point of view, maybe put ourselves in their sandals, if you will, um, and for what's going on. Uh, but they've been through a lot, right? They have 
been through a whole lot over the past three years. You, you know, if you're a disciple, you're kind of living your life and you're fishing or collecting taxes or doing whatever it is that you might do. And uh, then this traveling rabbi comes around and asks you to come and to follow him. And after some consideration or deliberation, you decide, I think that this really might be the promised Messiah that has come. And so I'm going to leave my job, I'm going to leave my family, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to spend my time helping him do what he is doing as Jesus, as, as the Messiah. And over those next three years, you see some amazing things happen. You see uh, the fulfillment of so many Old Testament prophecies really come to life through Jesus. He's healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind. He's giving speech to those that couldn't talk, hearing to the deaf. He's doing amazing, amazing miracles. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and then you got to sit and hear some amazing teachings from Jesus, teachings about how the, the law and what we call the Old Testament were really pointing and building up to the Savior that he has come to now and fulfill those teachings. And that, those teachings that you kind of understood but maybe didn't totally understand as a disciple uh, at this time when we're sitting here at the Last Supper um, made a lot of people mad, right? They made the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders really upset, and they didn't really like what Jesus had to say. And so we saw them have several attempts to take Jesus' life, either by stoning or seizing and arresting, uh, but every time, you, Jesus and you were able to get away, right? Like you were able to sneak out because it wasn't Jesus' time uh, yet to be taken. That's what uh, the Gospels have told us earlier. But you know that you have to stick with this guy because he's the Messiah. And so then you're sitting here at the Last Supper, and just a, a few days earlier, maybe a week earlier, uh, but we, we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? You come and you, and you come into Jerusalem. Jesus is riding on a donkey. People are laying down their coats before him so that he doesn't have to walk on the dirt. They're waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, to get, praise to God in the highest. And you think to yourself, I think this is what we've been working for. I think this is what we have been working towards over the course of the last three years, that Jesus would come and come into Jerusalem. And it's like, I kind of think that they're going to make him king at this point, right? Like, that's how you're feeling. And you're going in and you sit down to celebrate Passover with Jesus. And he comes and he tells them that he is leaving, and it throws the disciples uh, definitely for a little bit of a loop here because I think that they, they had this set of expectations about what was going to happen, how Jesus was going to be installed as king, and they were going to get to be right there with him and to help and support him, uh, you know, maybe have a little bit of honor there. Uh, and instead, Jesus says, I'm leaving, I'm going away, where I'm going, you cannot come. And this is where we start to see a lot of questions come into the disciples' minds. And Jesus records four separate questions from four different disciples, Peter, Thomas, Philip, and Judas, not Judas the betrayer, but the other Judas, uh, as they're trying to understand what's actually happening here and trying to understand what it is that Jesus is saying. Because, uh, you know, we kind of see Peter lose his cool a little bit, and Jesus says, well, you're going to betray me a few times. Um, and, you know, their hearts are becoming troubled, and their hearts are becoming afraid. And we see that happen because Jesus is speaking directly to that in verse 27. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. See, Jesus already knows exactly what they're thinking as they're losing this, any sense of peace that they might have had in themselves with the decision uh, that they made three years ago to follow him. And, and then they kind of see it coming with all this momentum. And then Jesus seemingly to them is kind of taking all that momentum away by just leaving right when things were kind of going to work out the way that they had hoped that they would. But uh, Jesus does speak directly to their hearts, and in verse 28, uh, 
he acknowledges that they're getting frustrated because he's going away. He said, you heard me say, I'm going away, and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than me. And as we think about the disciples' point of view, I think it's fair to say that they're at least not glad, because he tells them that if you did love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. And so they're definitely not glad, probably erring closer to the side of mad, or at least confused, and, and really wondering what is going on. They've definitely lost a sense of, a sense of peace, and they're now turning to troubled hearts and, and fear, and those are the things that they're feeling. And as I was spending time thinking through and praying over uh, this passage, and I just couldn't really see anything other than verse 27. It really just kept sticking out to me. It says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. And peace right now is a really popular topic in our world. It's something that we don't have a lot of, and people are talking about how we might be able to get it, right? Uh, we see wars happening amongst nations. We see violence happening between cultures, hate among the races, animosity amongst individuals. And the disciples here in this situation are definitely lacking peace. Uh, as Jesus is telling them that he is leaving. And our idea in our own heads and our hearts about what peace should look like is heavily shaped by the world around us. And I think it's important to acknowledge and to understand that. Um, but this idea of what peace is and, and that peace is good and something we should look for is not a new concept, right? We see uh, discussions about peace from a long time ago when King David was fighting all these wars with the neighbors around them so that his son Solomon could enjoy a peaceful kingdom throughout his reign. Like Peace was good and something that was talked about in the Old Testament. Something in recent history, as near as 50-ish years ago, we saw a movement of people called hippies that were all about not having war and having peace and ushering in those things. And just this week, there was an article written by a senior news journalist whose name is Ben Wiedemann, and the title of this was which is talking about how we don't we dream for peace, but we can't really get it. The title of his paper was "The Dream of Peace in Our Time in the Middle East Died on Monday," and he was writing that just this week. And so, as recently as this week, people are talking about and discussing how we dream for peace in our world, but we cannot get it. World peace uh, is kind of the joke answer to the greatest, you know, beauty pageant thing of the solution to all our problems. Um, and uh, the best definition that I can really find uh, from a worldly view of what peace looks like, uh, whether on a personal level or a societal level, is the absence of conflict. And uh, as I was thinking about that, uh, you know, the absence of conflict sounds really good. It sounds like something uh, that we should all be wanting. And I think that if you went around from culture to culture, from people to people, from country to country, uh, or just think about the relationships that you have conflict within your own lives, and, and when we thought about them, not having that conflict would be really nice. And it would be really comfortable. And I think we would all agree that we don't really want it. That kind of leads us to this bigger question of if we, if none of us want conflict, why do we still have it? Like, why can't we get peace? Why can't we have this absence of conflict that the world is looking for so much? And, uh, you know, then we get into the debate of what 
the absence of conflict should look like or how we can get to a point of peace in our life. It's should we take the weapons away or should we have more? Should we give the land back or should we take more of it? Should we should I let them win that argument even though I know they're wrong or, sh- or should I really, really prove them wrong uh, right here? Like, how should I defend myself? How should I stand up for myself? We have uh, a lot of contentious answers in our society to some of those questions um, that are commonly talked about and that are coming up more and more. And some of the smartest people in the world have spent time trying to solve this problem of what peace should look like and how we should get there, right? Albert Einstein, who's probably as smart as like three or four of me, said that peace is not merely the absence of war, but the presence of justice, of law, of order, in short, of government. So Einstein, and I like what he said, and he has this good idea that that peace is not merely the absence of war, it's these other things too. Um, And, you know, he kind of recommends government. But then I start to think about what government looks like in our world, and I see that we've got a lot of corruption. We've got a lot of corrupt governments. We've got governments that can't get along with one another and then create conflict in themselves. And uh, we have governments that have a lot of unrest within the people that they are supposed to be governing, and they don't necessarily install the law and the order and the justice that Einstein is hoping that they might be able to provide. Um, So whether it's on a global scale or on an interpersonal level, uh, how we get peace is widely disagreed upon by the world around us. And you'll hear a lot of suggestions and a lot of ideas. Um, And I think that what we have to look at as we're considering this idea of peace is that where a lack of peace really comes from. And we find the answer to that in Genesis chapter 3 in the Bible. As we look back uh, to the beginning in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are enjoying perfect communion and life with God, we see sin creep into the world as as Eve believes the lie of the serpent and defies what God has told them to do and instead chooses to enter into sin and and wants to make her own decisions instead of trust the plan that God has for them. And sin enters the world. And what do we see? As soon as sin enters the world, God comes up. He says, what happened? And Adam's like, well, she did it, right? Like, it wasn't me. It's Eve's fault. And conflict between people is one of the first results that we see of sin entering into the world. Adam and Eve now have conflict because I'm sure later she was like, why did you have to blame me to God? And he was like, well, I, it was your fault. And then so, you know, they're kind of going back and forth and we got conflict, right? Immediately, as soon as sin enters the world. It's, it's an unmistakable thing. And then God's response to their sin as it as they have sinned, is banishing them from the Garden of Eden. Like, they are no longer allowed to enjoy his peace. And so, mankind sinned, that that started in Genesis chapter 3, and that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation, to you and to I, is what makes us unable to experience the true peace of God. And, you know, this, it's not super fun to hear, but as we talk about these things, uh, you know, I can get to this point in this passage and in these thought processes and not let it affect me too much personally, uh, but then we kind of have to take a look at what the Bible has to say about our own lives, and that's where uh, it definitely starts to make me a little bit more uncomfortable. Um, and so the first thing that I really want us to walk away from uh, this morning thinking about and remembering is how do we find ourselves acting like the disciples in this situation in this text? How do we find ourselves acting like the disciples? <laughs> because they get really uncomfortable, probably borderline mad, definitely unglad when Jesus is leaving. Their hearts are troubled, and they're afraid. They're fearful. They don't know what to do. 
And I don't think that they are as afraid just because Jesus is leaving, but they're afraid of all the implications that come with him leaving and what that actually looks like for them and in their lives, right? Because, well, now there's no more earthly kingdom. Did I just waste the last three years of my life following this guy around? I threw him a job. I threw, you know, I've, I've given up everything to follow him. Why is this happening now? And I think we see this picture of the disciples not just finding their hope and their peace in who Jesus is, but in a lot of ways finding their hope and their peace in the things that Jesus could give them and get for them and what life was going to look like and all these good blessings that Jesus was going to pour out uh, that was a lot more self-motivated than it was motivated by simply following Jesus and honoring him. I think it's easy for me to find myself in that place, and maybe you can too. We're, we can find ourselves looking for peace or looking for security in something besides in Jesus himself. We think that some of these other benefits are going to be better than what Jesus has to offer and the peace that he has to offer us. And it can take a lot of different forms in our own lives. It can, it can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. I, I know for me at least, and maybe for you, control can be something that we try to hang on to uh, and find peace in. We feel like the things that we can control are things that can provide us security. And the disciples see the control from this situation, even though they were faithful and they followed Jesus and they did what they thought he wanted them to do, they see their control in this situation begin to quickly slip away. And I think that control uh, even has a deeper root than it, which is a lack of faith uh, in God and a lack of faith in God's plan in your lives. Because Jesus has just walked up and he said to the disciples, not walked up, but he said, we're, I'm leaving and they kind of all lose faith in the plan. They start asking a bunch of questions about, well, how's this going to work out? How's this going to affect us? How's this going to change what we thought was going to happen? And we can find ourselves very quickly, unfortunately, in that same place, just like the disciples. Maybe uh, it, it manifests itself for you in your job and the way you spend your time and the way you work. You feel like because if I work hard and put my head down and I do a good job that I can really control the output of my success, and it's something that I can put a lot of my hope in, that I can find security in my job because I have control over what's happening there. Or maybe you feel like you find control and peace from relationships with other people, people that you feel like you can trust or people that like to agree with you all the time or uh, different people that might make you feel like you can, you can really count on them and that they can provide you with peace. Uh, maybe, maybe it's in the things that you spend your time, you try to have control over your thought life or the way that you spend your time or the hobbies that you work on. And you think, you know, it may be more fun some, sometimes for us to talk about sports than it is to actually consider some of the hard things that are happening in life um, and to consider the things that we feel like we have control over or that we can understand instead of uh, having faith in the situations that can be trying and the situations that can be difficult. And this is where that I think we can find ourselves relating a lot to the disciples because they've been following Jesus. They've been obeying what he says pretty faithfully. They've been trying to understand what he's doing. And then they get to the Last Supper, and Jesus is kind of changing their idea of what the plan should look like, right? Like, it, it's kind of shifting. He's leaving now, and this isn't what we thought it was going to be, Jesus. And we really see this lack of faith well up amongst them. And I think that it can be easy for us sometimes to think, well— I've been faithful, doesn't, like, shouldn't this work out the way that I kind of wanted it to? Maybe, and may, maybe God owes me something. And that's not 
uh, kind of this idea of entitlement for our good works is something that we don't want to, we definitely don't want to ever admit that we have, right? I would never want to say to you, yeah, I, I, or I consciously even think that God should make things work out the way that I want them to because I've been good or because I've been faithful, because I was obedient. Uh, but a lack of faith can, in situations, and when we be, our hearts begin to be troubled and begin to have fear like the disciples he, did here, can really be red flags to our own, um, some, a lot of times unconscious, understanding of what grace actually looks like and what grace actually means, right? Because grace is something that God gives freely, something that we cannot earn, it's something that no matter how faithful we were, how much we gave up, how much we have sacrificed, uh, God still doesn't owe us. Like, he pours out grace that surpasses anything that we could ever earn on our own, because we, we earn nothing. Um, and so, the first thing that I want you to just kind of think about this morning is, how am I like the disciples? What are the things in my life that I try to hold on to for control instead of having faith in the plan that God has for me, or the things that I lean back on, the things that I fall to uh, when, when the plan doesn't work out quite like I wanted it to work out. And uh, Einstein kind of alluded to it, but gospel-motivated peace isn't simply just a lack of conflict. There's something that goes there, but government won't bring it about, right? And it is instead brought about by communion with God Almighty through the Holy Spirit. Jesus' words of comfort, comfort for the fear uh, that we see uh, in, in verse 26, he says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. Jesus' answer for the disciples' fear and their lack of peace in him is that the Holy Spirit is coming. He's going to teach you. He's going to remind you of everything that I have said. And I don't want to get too deep into the doctrine of the Trinity this morning, but I think it, this is an important thing for us to touch on as we're looking at this passage and thinking about what gospel-motivated peace really looks like and, and how it can affect our lives. We see in verse 26 all three persons uh, of the Godhead present. We see the Holy Spirit being sent by God the Father in the name of Jesus God the Son. We see all three of them here in this passage. And... <clears throat> Although Jesus is leaving the disciples, it's important for us to remember that God himself is actually still with them. Because the Holy Spirit is not just the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is uh, in himself his own person. And the Bible gives us several examples where the Holy Spirit is personified as his own person of God. And the Holy Spirit is coming uh, to be with, to counsel, to advocate. God's people, and that's who is bringing about this peace, and who is bringing it. So it's important for us to understand that just like Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, that Jesus and God are one and the same, but still dis two distinct persons, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are also distinct persons, and that the Holy Spirit and God are also distinct persons in themselves, and that all three of them coexist as God, uh, and that when Jesus says he is leaving, it is absolutely not a downgrade for the disciples or a downgrade for us that physical Jesus is leaving and that we're getting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still God himself, and he is still God coming to lead us and guide us, to teach us and to remind us um, and to give us his peace. And so Jesus knows what's going on in the hearts of the disciples. He knows what's going on in our hearts. 
he knows how we lack faith and how we're looking for it in other places. And his answer to that is that like, God is still coming in the Spirit to, to give you peace. And to give you that peace, he's coming in, in my name. And the second thing that I want us to really think about and take away, if you don't remember anything else this morning, uh, is this idea of why this peace is Jesus is able to give it. Why is it his to give? Right? He says in verse 27 that peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. And this is something that Jesus gives, right? It's something that everyone from Einstein to everyone has had some thoughts of like why is there conflict in this world? Why can't we solve these problems? And so I think it's important for us to understand the answer to why Jesus is in fact able to provide true peace, true gospel peace. And the answer comes directly from the gospel itself. The gospel tells us that sin has separated us from peace with God, right? Just like we talked about in Genesis chapter 3, that Adam and Eve have sinned and ruined the perfect peace with God that mankind had, and it has affected all of us, right? None of us are exempt, and none of us have not sinned. If we're honest with ourselves, before we come to know Christ, we really aren't at peace with God. And we might try to fool ourselves and think that we have peace in our lives, like some of those things that I talked about. Maybe it's our jobs, maybe it's our friends, maybe it's whatever we try to find control or security within, but we don't truly have peace in our lives uh, until we have peace with God. And the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of this message is that God loves us and truly has a plan for how he wants to interact with us, how he wants to love us, how he wants to display his love for us. And Jesus is telling us right here in this passage that this is actually God's plan. In verse 29, he says, I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. You see, he's saying not if it happens, but when it happens. When it does happen, I'm, I'm telling you this now, so when it does happen, you will believe. Because the disciples are about to find themselves in a really difficult situation, right? And Jesus addresses that in verse 30. He says, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. And if you think about what Jesus is alluding to in verse 30, what he's talking about is what the disciples are about to see, right? They're sitting here at the table at the Last Supper, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take us several more months to get there in the, through these passages of Scripture, but in really a matter of hours from where the disciples sit, they're about to see Jesus be arrested, betrayed, mocked, beaten, and then murdered on a cross. And so if you're a disciple, and you just sat at the Last Supper, and Jesus says to you, I'm leaving, I'm going away, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then you see all these things over the course of the next few hours happen to your Lord, who you've devoted the last three years of your life to. You've got to be thinking, I think we might have just lost, right? Like, I think Satan might have just defeated my God. Because you just saw all these terrible things happen to your Lord. And that's why Jesus is telling them here that this stuff is going to happen. And it's important for us to remember that he says... The prince of this world is coming, that's Satan, but he has no hold on me. And that is one of the most encouraging statements that we could ever hear Jesus possibly say, that Satan has no hold on him. And that although it looks like when you're a disciple sitting there, probably standing up and looking at the cross and seeing Jesus die there at the hands of the Romans and the Jews and at the hands of all that is evil, that 
that is part of God's plan, that he's telling us these things are going to happen so that we can know that, he, that this is part of what God has ordained from the beginning of time, that it's not a fluke that Jesus did not lose the battle with Satan, but it is part of God's plan. Verse 31, he says, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me to do. And what the Father has commanded Jesus the Son to do is to come and to lay down his life willingly for you and for me, that we might be able to re be restored to peace with God that was lost because of our sin, that was lost because of our sinfulness, my sinfulness, your sinfulness. God's plan was that Jesus would come and would do that and would do it very intentionally. And so Jesus knows that what the Father has commanded me to do is that it's going to look really, really bad to the disciples in just a matter of a few hours. And but we see Jesus willingly submitting to the Father's plan. And that's what uh, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, uh, talking about Christ's amazing submission to the plan that God has for us, the plan of the gospel that will come and uh, allow us to be saved, right? He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, remember the Trinity that we talked about, being in his very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." See, that, uh, that verse just pumps me up because it's because that Jesus has triumphed over Satan and over sin, over our sin, and over death itself, that he is able to give us true peace with God. And it's something that no one else in the world could ever provide for us, nothing else that is in or of the world could ever give us. It is only Jesus is to give because he has earned it for us on the cross, because he has taken on the wrath of God for my sin and for your sin, and has paid the penalty for that. And this peace doesn't mean that your life will instantly get better. There's still sin, and we're still going to feel the effects of sin in this world until Jesus comes back. But the role of the Holy Spirit is to teach us and to remind us of everything that Jesus has said. So that we can, as verse 27 says, have this peace that Jesus is leaving with us, this peace that he is giving with us, so our hearts will no longer be troubled and no longer be afraid. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 tells us that this is a peace, this peace that Jesus gives is a peace that surpasses all understanding and will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we shouldn't be anxious. We should no longer be anxious because we have a hope in the peace that Jesus has earned for us and given to us. And so that's why, that's why we have the opportunity to put all of our hope and find all of our peace in Christ and who he is. We trust in God's plan with confidence and not with fear. As 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. So the two main ideas that I want us to walk away remembering and thinking and pondering this week are this. The first one is, how am I like the disciples? 
what are the things in my life and in your life that are manifestations of my lack in faith, my lack of faith in God's plan? How am I not trusting in God and instead reaching and scrambling for things that I feel like I can control, things that I feel like that I have dominion over? And let's, let's be a church that repents of those things. Let's be a church that encourages one another in those things, that when we see those things happening in our own lives, to, be, uh, to care for each other one enough as, as brothers and sisters to, to sit down and say, Let, let's talk about how you're leaning on those things too much, and instead let's find our peace and our hope in Jesus. And the second thing that I want you to remember is that is the, the truth of the gospel that of why this peace is Jesus's to give, why he is able to give it to us, and that no one else has ever been able to solve this problem besides him. Remind yourself of the beauty of the gospel, that Satan has no hold on him. And, and be mindful that the beauty of the Trinity makes the truth of the gospel even sweeter, right? That God himself was willing to come and to give up his own life so that we could live, so that he could once again uh, give us his peace, and that he now gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can have this spirit not of fear, not of timidity, but of power and of love. So do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the beauty of your word, and we thank you for sending your son. Lord, we, we recognize our need for you. Lord, we recognize the ways in our lives that we, that we look for peace in things other than you. And we are so thankful. Uh, we are so thankful for the truth of the gospel that peace has been earned for us through Christ Jesus our Lord and his sacrifice. And we pray that we would uh, flee from that attitude like the disciples had and that we would uh, pursue faith in you. It's in Jesus' name.